This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Well, tonight we return to the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up where I left off in December in John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 43. And we'll continue on into chapter 5 through verse 18. John 4:43 through 5:18. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee for he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people. Blind, lame, paralyzed, and waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. 
The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, Who made me well? He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word once again this evening, we pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would understand the power and authority and glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done these great miracles and who has most of all done the greatest miracle of all, which is the salvation of his people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after some time away, we do return tonight to the Gospel of John. Now the last event that we had seen when we were looking at this book was Jesus bringing in a harvest among the Samaritans in what began as a routine roadside supply stop on the way from Jerusalem to Galilee. It was these treasonous half-breeds, these Samaritans, who were a mixture of the Jews and the other people that had moved in at the time of the deportation of Israel, that Jesus had done a great work among. Now Jesus was on his way back to Galilee from the journey to Jerusalem where he had cleansed the temple and also had his secret night meeting with Nicodemus. In the two days in the land of the Samaritans, Jesus had seen many people come to believe that he was the Savior of the world. Perhaps even more people than had done so anywhere else. Now Jesus had before this point done some miracles. He had turned water into wine in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. He demonstrated supernatural knowledge at various points. For instance, in chapter 1, when he called the first disciples. And then again in chapter 4, where he was able to tell the Samaritan woman at the well her whole life story. But in our next section tonight, we see that Jesus will begin to do miracles of a more public sort. More people will see them. More people will know about them. What this will also do is it will bring greater resistance. It will escalate the conflict between Jesus and the religious and societal authorities. They're already beginning to sour on Jesus due to, among other things, his disciples' strange washing rituals and because Jesus had loudly and publicly cleared the temple at the Passover feast. But we will look at these accounts of these healings tonight. First, we will look at them in three points. 
First, we will see Jesus healing disease in John 4:43 through 54. We'll see that Jesus will deliver a sick child on the brink of death. And then second, we will see Jesus healing disability. In John 5, 1 through 9, he will heal a paralytic man, someone who had been in this state for a very long time. And third and finally, we will see that resistance. We will see Jesus healing disputed in chapter 5, verses 10 through 18. Jesus' acts of healing will be criticized. They will be contested by these leaders of the Jews. So again, we have healing disease, healing disability, and then healing disputed. So first we will look at Jesus' healing disease. This is the section in chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the diversion into Samaria, Jesus arrives at his destination back in Galilee. Then in verse 44, we get an unusual comment, one that perhaps seems a little abrupt. It says that for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now in the other Gospels, we see similar statements made, and it's talking about the rejection that Jesus receives in Galilee in his hometown, for instance, from his own family, from his own local people. Here, Jesus is coming into his own country from someone else's country, the Samaritans. And yet it says here that he is received. So what is going on? Why does it make this comment here about the prophet having no honor in his own country? Well, there are various interpretations offered. Some think that Jesus' own country is actually Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. He was from the line of David. And so he actually had left in John's view, his own country, and had come to Galilee. But nothing has been said about Judea in some time now. He had been in Samaria Samaria immediately before this. I think the better solution is that this statement is, in fact, referring to Galilee. There will be something of a reception of Jesus there, but we also see an increase of resistance. We won't see the same kind of reception that we saw when Jesus was in Samaria where in just two days a great harvest had come in, a great revival had broken out. Jesus knows at this point already that many in Galilee will not receive him. In fact, by the time we're finished with this text tonight, we also see that he will go back to Judea, and there he will see resistance that is more overt, resistance that is growing, that seeks to silence and destroy Jesus' ministry. So all this to say, Jesus is probably at this point coming to Galilee with some reluctance. After tarrying for a time in Samaria and seeing this great harvest, he's going into a place and time where things are going to be more difficult. Perhaps you understand the weight of not being accepted among your own people. Perhaps many among your family and friends are not Christians. You speak the truth and they do not believe you. I am the first member of my family that I know of, at least going back several generations, to embrace Reformed theology. I have family members that are other denominations of Christians. I have other family members that are unbelievers. So I get some rather interesting reactions when I go back home and talk to people about what I've been up to these last few years and why. Well, Jesus experienced this and far greater rejection from his own. Now, it is not forever. 
Many of Jesus' family members and countrymen would later become his disciples, would later become bold witnesses for him. You can see in your Bible in the New Testament, for instance, the letters of James and Jude, written by half-brothers of Jesus, other children of Mary and Joseph. James and Jude later became Christians and leaders of the early church, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, authored books of Scripture. So if you are struggling with such rejection from your own, from your family, from others, take heart. There may well be more to the story to come. We see that Jesus is this time, for now at least, received among the Galileans, who had seen what had transpired in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jesus had caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. When he had gone to the temple at the Passover, he cleared the temple of the money changers, of the livestock traders. This would have been a very crowded, a very well-attended public event. This time of year, some of you are, for instance, going to stock shows. So imagine you go to a stock show and somebody there causes a big public disruption and then you look a little closer and you realize, wait, I know that guy. He's from back home. He's from Hamill. He's from Winter. When you get back, the next time you see him, you're probably going to ask him. You're probably going to want to know what that was all about. And that is sort of the situation in Galilee. After causing this big stir, this big scene in Jerusalem, Jesus comes back and some of the people saw him there. And so they're interested in what's going on. And we see that Jesus returns to Cana. Now remember, this is where he had performed that first miracle, turning water into wine. And when he is in Cana, we see a nobleman. We see someone who would have been one of the upper crust of society, one of the upper class, whose son was sick at Capernaum, a different town some distance away. Now this nobleman comes to Jesus because his son is about to die. This man is likely wealthy. He's likely influential. But what good is any of that in the face of such a potential horror and tragedy, the death of his young son? This man had likely heard that Jesus could do miracles. He had turned water into wine at Cana. He had done some other undocumented miracles in his travels. And so this man implores Jesus. He begs him, come to Capernaum and heal my son. Now, Jesus' response in verse 48 previews a problem that will begin to emerge in Jesus' ministry. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Realizing that he is in his homeland, realizing that he is without honor, Jesus knows that people will not receive his word, they will not receive his teaching at face value, they will not receive it for what it is. They... They want the signs. They need something more. They need something special. Now, he is not specifically rebuking the man who requests this healing of his son. This man might be included, but the rebuke is wider. He's using the second person plural. It would be like, you people or you all. We don't really have a good second person plural in English, unless you live in the South, and then you have y'all. But otherwise, that doesn't come through clearly. But this is, in the Greek, a plural. Jesus is addressing you people. He's addressing all of them. 
The people around, generally, the people of Jesus' homeland, they will not receive him without signs. We will later see that many will receive him only because of the signs, and then they will turn from him at the first sign of trouble, the first sign of resistance, or the first difficult teachings that they don't like. Others will criticize and even reject the miraculous signs, as we're about to see. The nobleman makes his request plain in verse 49. He says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He thinks, rather reasonably, that since these miracles are happening where Jesus is, that Jesus needs to be present. He needs to show up for the miracle to occur. But Jesus will demonstrate his power here in a new and greater way. After this man has journeyed all the way from Capernaum to Cana to ask Jesus to come with him, Jesus doesn't. He will just say it, and miles away in another town, the boy will be healed. He tells the man to go your way, your son lives. Now I put myself in that situation and I wonder how I would have reacted. I feel like I could have potentially been a little frustrated. I came all this way to ask for your help and all I get is go back home. He doesn't come with, he doesn't come along. But here we see that this man believes. On the way back, he is met by his servants who told him that his son lived, his son was alive, and that he had been healed. And the result of this, in verse 53, is that salvation comes to that house. Not only of the son's physical life, but of the whole family's spiritual life. This man believes in Christ together with his whole household. And we see here a great demonstration of Jesus' power. People will go to incredible lengths to be healed when they are suffering, to find relief and healing for those they know and love who are suffering. You can think in our day of all the doctors and all the treatments and all the medications and all the procedures that exist for all the various health problems that a person can have. Now, some of these are truly blessings. It is nice in our day that we can, for instance, take antibiotics and not die of something like a strep throat, or that we can have our bones properly set if we break them, as opposed to being crippled for the rest of our lives, as many with broken bones used to be. Now, there are also a lot of charlatans, a lot of snake oil salesmen who claim to offer quick fixes and miracle cures that don't really do anything. This is sadly true among many who even profess to be Christians. There are televangelists, those on TV who claim to be Christians and claim to have these great healing ministries and they have these massive healing services and then they rig the system. People who are genuinely sick, genuinely disabled or filtered out, they're not even allowed to come up and be healed because they actually have a real problem and there's no healing power present there at all. But Jesus, being God, being the Lord of heaven and earth, has true healing power. And it is above and beyond any of man's schemes or machinations or even man's real medical advancement. Jesus does not need doctors. He does not need remedies. All he needs is a word from a different town, miles away, 
He doesn't even have to be there. He likely had not even met this boy. It's possible he had never even seen him in his life. And yet with a word from miles away, this boy who was gravely sick, who was near death, was fully healed. Because Jesus is the absolute sovereign and Lord over all things. Even time and space cannot limit his power. We also see that God works not just through individuals, but through entire households. We see our covenant theology in practice that God will not only save this man, but save his whole family. We see that the ultimate ends of Jesus' miracles are not the miracles themselves, though they do demonstrate his power and glory, but Jesus' work is the salvation of souls. We then get a postscript in verse 54. This was the second sign that Jesus had performed in Galilee after the turning water to wine. But after this miracle, Jesus will once again return to Judea and perform another healing miracle there. And this brings us to our next point. After healing this boy's disease, we come to our second point, Jesus' healing disability in chapter 5, the first eight verses. We see that there is another feast of the Jews. We don't know exactly which one, but we do see that Jesus once again returns to Jerusalem. This was the common Jewish practice of the day. Those who of the Jews who were within a reasonable distance at the time of these feasts would come to Jerusalem to observe them. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he comes to this pool of Bethesda, which was believed to have some healing power in it. I mentioned before the lengths that people will go to to try to be healed, and this pool is yet another example of such a thing. There seems to be some kind of story, some kind of legend, perhaps some kind of lore surrounding this pool that it was able to heal. Now, just to help us to be confident of the historical reliability of Scripture, we know where this pool is. It was found. It was excavated in the late 19th century after many years of many denying that it existed, that, oh, this was just a made-up tale. Well, they found it. It's there. You can go see it if you want. But what's this business about an angel stirring up the water and people being healed? I read from the New King James Version, and it has verse 4 in there, which says that. If you're looking at a different Bible, it may not have that verse in there. The answer is, we don't know for sure. John Calvin, for one, believed that this text, uh, verse 4, was authentic and that this did actually happen and that there was miraculous healing going on in this pool. An angel came, stirred up the water, and people had been healed there. We do have an issue of a textual variation here. Many of the oldest and earliest Greek texts don't include verse 4, and that's why, if you're looking at a different translation, it may not be there. And so and they would say that probably this part about the angel was added later. Modern commentators tend to follow these texts and say that the Stirring of water, which again appears in verse 7, is of natural cause, and this bit about the angel's not authentic, it's not added, or that it was added later. It's a difficult question, and I won't pretend to be able to offer the definitive answer. But what we do know is that the very real and undisputed act of healing that we are about to witness from Jesus comes without the use of the pool 
or any angels or anything else. We see that Jesus finds this man at the pool who had had some sort of infirmity, some sort of condition that made him crippled for 38 years. He is somehow paralyzed. He's unable to get up and walk on his own. He can't get into the pool by himself. Now you think about a condition like that that has lasted for 38 years, it would be pretty safe at that point to regard it as permanent. If you've had 38 years of it, it's probably not going to clear up on its own in year 39. Because of this man's disability, as I said, he's not able to get himself to the pool where this healing power is supposed to reside. At the right time, when the water is stirred up, there's too many other people around. He's not able to move on his own, and so he just can't go there. He doesn't have anyone to help him get into the water. This is a sad picture. This man is paralyzed. He's alone. He says no one's there to help him. There's no one there with him who would help him. And so he is rather hopeless. But Jesus will demonstrate his power once again. He tells the man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now remember, this man had been unable to walk for 38 years. This wasn't someone who could just, you know, get up and walk attributable to any natural cause. But Jesus, again, merely says the word, and it is so. Immediately so. The man hops up, takes his bed, and is on his way, after 38 years of not being able to even conceive such a thing. Once again, Jesus has demonstrated his sovereignty, his power, his rule over all things. You think about someone having such a permanent disability, this is something that even modern medicine can do very little about. There are some conditions, some forms of paralysis and the like, that they're just permanent. But the power of the Son of God is beyond any illness or any injury or any disability. Jesus here displays his power over the things which humanity can lay no claim to mastering or controlling. Jesus is God, and he displays here a power that can only come from God. Now this should be cause for rejoicing. Certainly for this man it would be. But we see that it is not so for everyone. We get a very important note at the end of verse 9. And that day was the Sabbath. And that brings us to our third and final point. After Jesus heals disease and then heals this man's disability, we come to see Jesus healing disputed in verses 10 through 18. We see in verse 10 that the Jews, specifically this would be the leaders of the Jews, those whose job it was to police matters of religious and ceremonial observance, accuse the man who had just been healed. They see him walking around with his bed and they tell him it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now here it is helpful to know some of the background of Jewish Sabbath observance at the time of Christ. God, of course, did give the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. We hold this to be true even now. God created and ordered the world in six days of labor and then one day of rest as a pattern for us. 
The fourth commandment is a matter of the moral law. It is binding on all men forever. Now this man is accused of Sabbath breaking for what? For carrying his bed. It should be noted that there's nothing in biblical Sabbath teaching, even in the Old Testament, that would seem to prohibit this man from taking his bed home from the pool. So what was going on? Well, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time, they were not merely content to observe the law of God, to observe the day of worship and rest. No, they added to God's law their own traditions. On top of what Sabbath observance truly required, they added lists of regulations and other things on top of the biblical laws that must not be done. And in fact, it was these things that would often lead to confrontations with Jesus. In Mark 3, for instance, Jesus and his disciples were accused of Sabbath breaking for picking and eating heads of grain. What Jesus does, among other things, in confronting the leaders at these points, as he is trying to purify Sabbath observance, freeing it from these man-made impositions. He wants them to return to keeping the Sabbath the way God intended. It is from Jesus' teachings and actions that we see, for instance, our Reformed doctrine of Sabbath-keeping that makes an allowance for works of necessity and mercy. It was a merciful act to heal this man. And furthermore, nothing prohibited from him from taking his bed home after that happened. That was just a wise and prudent thing to do. But there is actually a bigger dispute going on here between Jesus and these leaders than what constitutes proper Sabbath observance. Within that conflict is the true conflict. A conflict over authority. Who was authoritative over God's word and God's people? Was it, Jew, was it Jesus or was it these Jewish leaders with their man-made laws and traditions? Well, to us, the answer is obvious. But this is the conflict that will ultimately lead to Christ's death. We see this conflict of authority manifest in verse 11. The man who was healed answers the charge of the Jews. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man accepted the authority of the one who had demonstrated power from God by doing this miraculous work. With good reason. Not only is Jesus demonstrating his power and his authority over man, but his authority over nature, his authority over the whole world over sickness and health and life and death themselves. So who has real authority? The one who can do that? Or these men who just add rules and debate rules and all this for an appearance of external righteousness? So the, the Jews interrogate this man who had been healed. They ask him, who told you to take up your bed? Now, this seems rather absurd from our perspective. Never mind, this man had until this day been disabled for 38 years and is suddenly walking around. You'd think they would be a little more interested in that. But no, the whole focus of this inquiry is that he was carrying his bed. But he doesn't know exactly who did this deed. There was a big crowd, and as soon as Jesus had healed the man, he withdrew 
So he didn't know for sure who had done it. So the man cannot answer the authorities at this point. But then in verse 14, we see that Jesus later finds this man in the temple. Tells him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now some take this to mean that this man had suffered this condition because of some sin he had done in his previous life. I don't think that is the best way to understand this. I mean, in a certain sense, all sickness and all death comes as a result of sin. We were not created to suffer and die. These things come because of the fall and because of sin. But what Jesus is telling this man, what he is making him aware of, is not only his need for physical healing, but his need for spiritual healing. He needs to be reconciled to God. He needs his sin to no longer be reckoned to his account. He needs to be forgiven of his sins. And if he is not forgiven of his sins, then something much worse will, in fact, happen to him. Jesus is calling him to repentance and to life. Now, once the man knew that it was Jesus who healed him, he goes back and tells the authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, he didn't likely do this to cause Jesus any harm or trouble. It wasn't like he was going and turning him in or ratting him out. Rather, he simply wanted to give credit where it was due, perhaps not knowing the Jews' intent. I mean, a man who has experienced such a remarkable miracle in his life would probably be telling everyone about it once he knew the details of it. But for the Jews... They are embroiled in this power struggle with Jesus, and that is all they can think about. Jesus is a threat to their agenda, their power, their influence. And so we see in verse 16 the ramping up of this conflict. We see that they persecuted Jesus and they wanted to kill him because he had done this good work, this merciful work on the Sabbath. When they begin to do this, Jesus answers with an assertion of his ultimate authority over the Sabbath and over them. He says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. It is here that Jesus makes it publicly and explicitly clear to the Jews that he is the son of God and that he is equal to God in power and authority and in his ability to dictate how the Sabbath is to be observed. He is the Son of God, he is God, and is so doing his work at all times, including on the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. But the Jews will not accept him as such. We see in verse 18 that after this statement, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, not only for Sabbath-breaking, but because he made himself equal with God. And in their eyes, this was blasphemy. The problem for them, the fact they refused to consider, is that what Jesus was saying was true. It's not blasphemy to say you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. So what we have here are the seeds sown of a conflict that will carry us all through the rest of John and ultimately lead to Christ's death. Of course, Christ's death leads to his resurrection, his ultimate display of power. 
So we have seen tonight Jesus' power and authority displayed through his works of healing, his healing of disease and his healing of disability. With mere words, he has shown his power and his authority over nature. But we have also seen tonight this power and authority, though it was so gloriously displayed, being rejected by those who would rather cling to their own agendas and their own self-righteousness. This really is the ultimate question that we all must face when it comes to Jesus Christ. Jesus has done more than enough, and more than anyone ever could, to demonstrate that he is the Lord of all things and that he is the Lord of us. He is the Lord of creation, having made all things, upholding and ruling all things by his hand of power and providence. He is the Lord even over disease and death. He most of all demonstrated that he is Lord over death by conquering death in his own death and resurrection. All suffering and death, just as that of this child or that paralytic at the pool, is brought by sin. Adam sinned against God in the garden and fell and plunged all humanity into sin and death with him. And we also, each and every one, have our actual sins of thought, word, and deed, which we continually commit against our God. Only in Jesus Christ is there forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. Will you believe him? Will you repent of your sins and follow and love and serve him? Or will you, like these Jewish leaders, walk away continuing to shake your fists in rebellion? Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus has absolute power. Any other power, any other name on which you depend, be it your own or any other, will fail you. And so may we all tonight believe wholeheartedly in Christ our Lord, knowing that he is the Lord of all things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We praise you and thank you for your great power and glory, which is on display in this text. The power and glory of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, the master over all processes of nature, over all disease and even death itself, that he is the Lord over your word, the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is our ultimate authority in all things. I pray that we would all bow the knee to his authority and that we would serve Christ as our Lord and our Savior, that we would trust in him for forgiveness of sins and salvation, and that this gospel would go forth into our lost and dying world so that others, too, may bow the knee to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.